Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. Agile for Humans, episode two. Processes and tools dominate today's Agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. One of our guests tonight, Mr. George Dinwiddie. How you doing, George? Uh, I've got a little bit of a cough. No, that's fine. Better than no yesterday. worries. And also joining us, Ari Very nice to see you again. We uh, actually met up down at Agile Indy a few weekends ago. Had a great time down there. And I think, the, George, the last time I saw you, it was Agile. No, it was Agile Coach Camp in Indianapolis, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so how you guys been since then? Oh, it's been busy. That's a good problem, right? Yeah. Uh, it cuts both ways. <laughs> Very good. So the way we do the show, guys, I think as you both know, we're going to kick around a few topics, see which ones we want to dig into, go ahead and tear those apart for as long as it makes sense and move on to the next. We'll keep it in within a 60-minute time box because we're agile people and we like time boxes. And we'll go from there. I think we found a topic that might be interesting. Right before we hit the uh, record button, we were talking about how you know these two guys are are traveling consultants, but I am a, I'm a, I'm a full-time employee that gets to stay home all week. And they were jokingly mentioning the glamorous lifestyle of a consultant. So I'm wondering if that's a fun topic, if you guys want to peel the curtain back a little bit on what it's like to travel, to make your agile living, and we can go into that. And maybe I can talk about the opposite side of the table, hiring the consultants and, and working through that. Does that sound interesting? Or do you guys have anything else you'd like to tee up? We could go a little into that. I'm brand new to it, and George, you've you've been doing it for a while, so maybe that's a good way to come at it. Yeah, I actually haven't been on the road much for the last oh, year and a half. Been been working with local clients, but it with DC traffic, it's not necessarily easier to get to them. <laughs> kind of feels like a layover just sitting in traffic, doesn't it? Yeah. I had that discussion with my fiance. Uh, we live in Bloomington, which is in southern Indiana, uh, an hour from some parts of Indianapolis, an hour and a half from where all the tech jobs would be. 
Uh, and she had the opinion that it would be really nice if I could work effectively locally in, uh, in Indianapolis. There's nothing in Bloomington to speak of. But it would probably mean something like an hour and a half, twice a day commuting. And frankly, I don't think I'd be a lot of fun before and after a commute like that. So you, it's kind of better that I have to you know, fly yeah. out for four days every week. You know, being a Purdue guy, I totally agree. There is nothing of note in Bloomington, Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably supposed to disagree with you now that you said it, but I'm not going to. I like it no, a lot. It's just not a tech hub. So you're new to the consulting world. What's been the surprising aspect of it? And the, and the reason I'm asking these questions is I'm I'm fascinated by it and sometimes long for that that adventure. So I'm I'm honestly curious about this this type of role. Well, uh, could be Dunning Kruger speaking, but I guess I'm surprised most by how easily I've taken to it and the feedback I'm getting so far indicates that either either we all have Dunning-Kruger or I really am doing okay. I wouldn't have guessed that. I didn't think that I, especially, you know, I haven't been in situations that are like that, that I'm aware of. Uh, I took a jump and, and tried to get into this line of work because in previous teams that I've been on, programming is great. I love it. I'm never going to stop. And that's what makes me effective as a coach is that I keep doing it. But I guess what I'm surprised by is that the very same behaviors that I enjoyed so much as a member of the team, if I turn them up a little extra, that's all it is, coaching and consulting. And so it seems to be working so far. And I don't know what I don't know, but it seems to be working so far. So now for the people who don't know, would you go into that uh, Deming-Kruger yes, uh, definition real quick, just for the people out there who may not be familiar with that? Yes. Uh, Deming-Kruger is... Those are two researchers, I believe, that they did a paper. It's pretty well-known among people who have seen it and pretty unknown among people who haven't. People think that they have expertise when they're at the front end of a learning curve pretty early, when in fact there's, they just don't understand how much expertise they lack, which is exactly what I'm afraid of. <laughs> John Cleese has a, uh, a really great uh, YouTube video on, on that. He's apparently uh, friends with Dunning and Kruger. He's got a great description of it in his own style, of course. So we'll, uh, we'll track down a link to that and throw it in the show notes. I'd imagine uh, his take on it's going to be pretty good. So, But thanks for that. Now, George, on the flip side, now you said you hadn't traveled in a while, but you have been a, a traveling consultant in the past. You know, What do you think the state of consulting is today, especially in the agile space, even from a local perspective? Is it is it thriving? Is it growing? Is it you know, running at full steam, or is it still trying to, to get traction? Oh, well, there's, there's certainly a lot of work out there right now. Uh, a lot of people looking for consulting, lo- looking for consultants to come in and help them, which is quite different from a year or two ago. Things were a lot thinner, but, but um, that kind of cuts both ways. You know, there are a lot of people who are, I, I see an awful lot of people who've been a scrum master once and say, okay, now I'm ready to be an, an agile coach. And, you know, and some of them are, but an awful lot of them are not, you know. There's there's more to coaching than there is to uh, than there is just knowing agile. You know that was actually one of the biggest takeaways that I had from Agile Coach Camp in Indy, and it was getting to spend time with guys like you, George, and Don Gray, and Aaron Copel, and and all of you guys that uh, and gals that have you know, have, Diana Larson was there, Esther Derby was there, you know, getting around you guys and and hearing the way that you speak, I realized very quickly. That while I'm, I think I'm proficient in the mechanics of Scrum, I am a novice at coaching, and that was a huge takeaway for me. It really kind of blew my mind how, you know, while I I, I know the Scrum framework fairly well, I have a good sense of the Agile mindset. 
I don't have a clue how to coach people. And that was my takeaway from, from that event. Now, since then, I've been reading books and, and working on that. And uh, a few people like Don and some others have sent me some great things. And when I've been coaching myself and some other people have been coaching me up. But man, that is, it is more of a true statement than I think you know, George, when you say <laughs> that, you know, especially when you're at an Agile coach camp and you, you, you run into it head on and you can either ignore it or acknowledge it. I'm glad that you guys, you know, showed, taught me that lesson. But it is, you're so right. It's an amazing difference between being proficient with the Scrum framework and actually knowing how to go in and coach it. Truly a, a true distinction there. Well, and a lot comes down to just, you know, what range of situations are you comfortable in? Can you, can you, you know, make positive contribution to? A lot of people just naturally, you know, fall into it with some groups of people. But other situations are much tougher, and, and you know they may or may not have the the skills and background to deal with it. I don't know that anybody ha- can deal with all situations. Jerry Weinberg would be the closest I've ever seen, but he's pretty amazing. So I'm burned up that I missed that coach camp because it was in my backyard, but uh, I was out of the country that particular weekend. <laughs> and uh, I, I think it sounds like, Ryan, you had your, your feet held to the fire in a way that helped you see your feet more clearly, as it were. And uh, I'm looking forward to having an experience like that with Jerry Weinberg and Esther Derby in about a month in Albuquerque. I'm going to problem-solving leadership. And I'm looking forward to having to look at myself harder than I normally do. Oh, that's such a cool experience. I wish I could do it again. Can you say a little more about what it was like when you did do it? Well, I don't, you know, of course, I don't want to tell you any of the exercises. I want you to experience them <laughs> firsthand for yourself. I will say that it, you will get benefit from it to the degree which you apply yourself. And so the, the harder you work at it, you know, the more you put into it, the more thought and the more you open yourself up to it, the more you'll get out of it. And it, it was about 10 years ago that I did it and I'm still learning stuff from it. See, and that's the fun part too, that uh, I don't think we ever master this stuff. It's just a constant evolution of thought and mindset and adding different models to the to your current state of mind on the on the coaching topic. And, you know, it, and what else is, is great is that, you know, George, you know, people like you, you guys have been so accessible. You know, you're you're joining the two of us on a podcast that, you know, we're more, I think we're more novice in certain areas and, and you know, from coding and scrum, we're perhaps proficient, but it's just great that in this community that we even have access to people like you and Don Gray and, and some of those others that have been more than willing to coach up. And so that, it's also a sign of, a, I think, a very positive theme throughout this Agile community as well. So I guess that's just a little appreciation back towards you for for that for holding the feet to the fire and some of those eye-opening lessons and and I hope they continue. Well, well thank you. Um you know, I don't really feel that I'm <clears throat> that I've made it that I'm I'm reached some point where I can relax and not worry. It's it's a constant constant growth opportunity and I think everybody is ahead of everybody else in in some way. So So there's a there's an interesting comment that uh that was made about Programming makes you an effective coach. I, I think my, my friend on the left of my screen here is responsible for that comment. Now, I started as a developer, but I gave it up for a, a career in management. Do you think that uh, coaching makes all the difference when you go to consult and, and teach these uh, agile lessons to the companies that bring you in? Well, uh, speaking for myself, I barely 
believe the words that I say when I give counsel to anyone myself, just barely. And <laughs> if I haven't had, you know, my hands on the keyboard and, you know, on the hook for some kind of an outcome recently, then I believe myself less. And I don't see why anybody else should. So just from myself, knowing my own proclivities, my own shortcomings, I have to keep myself honest. It also says in that manifesto that you're supposed to be doing it and helping others do it. And it can't just be one or the other. Uh, I happen to like programming, so that's fun for me. But that's, that's for me the real context where Agile comes from and goes back to is we're trying to get some software done, usually. Sometimes it's not software, but usually it is. And that's where, that's where I feel most rooted and attached to it. Yeah, I, I, I'm sort of a generalist. And, and I really, I'm also from a uh, programmer background. And I like the fact that I can sit down and, and pair with people and help them with technical issues. And I think there's a real advantage to that, in, in being able to get down, down there with the code. But there's a whole lot of other stuff beyond that. The, the people aspects are really the, the more important part and the, and the challenge, I think. You know, any competent programmer can, can learn how to do test-driven development, for example, or behavior-driven development. It's not that hard to do if you decide that you want to try it and, and, and give it an honest go. And it's the people issues that keep people from trying it. In, in my case, you know, I, I looked at, there were a lot of people that I respected on mailing lists that were saying, oh, this is the only way they worked. And I was saying, well, but that can't possibly work. You know, it was a, a little little discontinuity between these two ideas. So I thought I'd try it and, and, and see. And, you know, three days of trying it full time was enough to convince me that yes, I could do it, and yes, it was worthwhile. And I think anybody can do that. But in a lot of situations, it's really hard for developers to do. I happened to, to be a little ahead on my work, and, and so I spent that time going out on this limb and, and trying it out. You know, a lot of developers never get that, that sort of freedom at work. And trying to, trying to work all day and then study at home you know that's a hard thing. So I'm a little ambivalent about you know whether whether the uh, the real technical chops are are so important or not. Sure, they help. Sure, you know, there, there's an awful lot of times I see where people get so concerned about the the process that they forget about the fact that you have to program competently too. And and I've seen some really bad code come out of that. But. Right. So do you think it is difficult? just for a pure Agile consultant, or even let's lump a Scrum Master into this question if it makes sense. <clears throat> is it difficult to show that value that a person in such a role brings? And, and is that still an issue in the Agile community? Which person? A person with, with the technical skills? or I'm going to say without. So let's just have a pure Scrum Master or a pure Agile coach, for instance, who's going to be on site to teach the Agile mindset, help teams get up and running, but they're not in a coding role. Do you think it's more difficult to demonstrate their value, or have we cracked that nut? I think a lot depends on the needs. If that particular group needs someone to demonstrate how to do technical things to them, then you're at a disadvantage, and, and maybe you need to call on someone else to, to help you with that. But a lot of it, you know, I, I've known a lot of people who, who were technical at one time, and, and, but their technical chops were, were not up to speed at all, and they didn't know, have to know how to do stuff. They still could tell whether someone else was feeding them a line or not. They could still ask good questions. They could still help facilitate things. And they knew enough to not get fooled by somebody just handing them a line. 
I've seen a scrum master uh, on a team I'm coaching now that uh, he definitely was a small talker back in the day, and I think he maybe even did XP or something like it. And he's he's the scrum master now for this team, and he's fantastic because he was a programmer and he remembers what that was like, but he doesn't think that he has anywhere near the requisite knowledge to to even suggest to people what they should do. So he doesn't have that problem. Uh, he's just looking for impediments to remove, process to not follow, uh, anything you can do to keep the, the wheels greased. He's great. It's a joy to watch him. So I think his value is evident. Yeah, that's interesting insight. And that's the role. So I, I'm not necessarily in a in a scrum master role, but in a man- management role, even though I have a, a developer background, I've decided I'm not going to pretend that I even come close to understanding what my, my team's doing anymore. So it's it, but even that kind of stretch, it's, it is kind of scary to let that go, but it's, it is something that is somewhat necessary for certain roles, especially at Scrum Master and, and other coaching levels. Do you guys think we've hit on this contractor consultant type role a discussion enough? Are there any, top, any last topics you want to bring up about this, or should we move on to uh, the next piece of the discussion? I guess I have one more idea I would add that's maybe why I've been able to get such a smooth start and there are two parts to that. One is uh, to echo and amplify what Ryan was saying. George, uh, people like you, and you in particular, have been accessible to me. Twitter has been fantastic. Uh, mailing lists have been fantastic. Uh, George, I think like a year or two ago when I was trying to make this career move and learn a lot about coaching, you may not remember, but you sent me an email with some references that were very valuable to me. And the, in general, the bibliography that you have for all the, the posts that you write gives me you know, a warren of rabbit holes to go look through for... <laughs> ideas to expand on. It's like Wikipedia for Agile. But so that's one. And the second part is the mindset I've brought to it from what my fiance studied is the reason that we're in Bloomington. She's in a PhD program for uh, social animal behavior, in particular, how they learn from each other, how they influence each other. And mainly she studies brown-headed cowbirds because they don't come with a lot of pre-cooked behavior. They acquire a lot of it. But even so, even though those aren't people, that frame of looking at the problem has been immensely valuable to me as I try to come in and figure out what is my theory of change for these people in this situation. We're not that different. Maybe we're a little more focused cognitively. Maybe we have uh, abstractions that we like to bandy about, but we still have territory. We still have trust and willingness to do things for others. And like you're saying, ultimately, it's, it's always a people problem. So those two things together, uh, the, the openness of, of coaches and consultants like yourself, to help someone like me get started. And then this, this mindset of we're all social learning animals exhibiting behaviors. It's been great. So George, something that uh, our friend Don Gray did in the last episode was recommend about a hundred different books on uh, various topics. And I think we're going to start mm-hmm. a book club just titled Don Gray's Agile Book Club. <laughs> but uh, I was wondering if you have any recommendations, you know, say that you know, you're like uh, Amita or, or myself, and uh, and we're trying to get going as as coaches, or we just want to understand it better. Where would you point us? What would you say we absolutely have to must must read in order to uh, really start up in this area? Oh my, I, I don't know that there's any must. I mean, there's there's a lot of incredible stuff out there. You know, if you're going into into business as a consultant on your own, then certainly uh, Jerry Weinberg's Secrets of Consulting is. Very, you know, very valuable work, and uh, Peter Block's uh, Flawless Consulting is is another good book on on that 
topic. And that's just on the consulting aspects. That's not, you know, agile or software development at all. In, in Jerry's got a lot of good books. And uh, for his uh, quality software management series predates agile. But it, it's, you know, rereading that, it's very congruent with, with uh, you know, agile principles. It's looking at things through a management point of view. And so that helps a lot of people. It's a four-volume series. You know, it goes into to, uh, how you can tell, you know, what's going on and, and make, make judgments and make decisions, you know, and down to the people aspects also. There's a lot of good stuff there. What else would be really good? For, in terms of a single book to give people a good flavor of what Agile is, then James Shore's Art of Agile Development is really excellent because it kind of, you know, it's very XP-based, so it gets down to the technical practices and talks about that. And it, it, it suggests practices, but it talks about how they work with each other and, and what's the benefit of them, not just a recipe. So those are some, some good starting points. You know, I'll probably think of some more as we go along. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that. And we'll be sure to get links to those books into the show notes. And George, if you think of any more and you, you send me an email, I'll, I'll get those added as well. I think for the next topic, I, I definitely have a few more, but I'm wondering if you guys want to tee one up so that I'm not dominating the entire discussion. Well, there was a little discussion uh, uh, as I was ra- stuck on the bus in traffic uh, this afternoon on, on Twitter about retrospectives and and their value, we could do go that direction, or but you know, I saw that I, th- I saw that thread, and I thought that one was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. The idea of I think there's a new hashtag brewing called No Retrospective. Oh boy, <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> so, so Bob Marshall, who who kind of triggered me on that, was saying don't do retrospectives, and and I'm not exactly sure what he has in mind. I, I'm sh- quite sure that that he's got in mind something better. That he considers better, and but my feeling is, there is not, you know, we're people, we're we're flawed humans. There's not one way of improving yourself. And the statement he made was, uh, "Don't have retrospectives; just fix things as they come up." And to me, the that you know, those two things don't go together. Sure, fix things when they come up. If you see something broken, fix it. If you know if something's not working, talk about it with your team. Don't put it off until a special time sometime in the future. But that's not the point of retrospectives. That's just what people have gotten to think because they think that, oh, in Scrum, then we're supposed to inspect and adapt and we've got this one ceremony to do that. And so therefore we have to do all our inspecting and adapting during that ceremony. And that's not true. And in fact, what most, you know, most of the Scrum literature I've seen on retrospectives tries to boil it down into three questions. What did we like? What did we not like? And what are we going to do differently? And that is not a retrospective. You know, uh, that's, it's mostly a bench session when you, you come out that way. So it's really, there's a couple of things that I think are very important you know, to call it a retrospective. And one is you're looking back over some period of time, you know, and introspecting as a group. But you're, you're, you're gathering data from a period of time, so you've got the, the, the benefit of you know, this long-term view that you don't have in, you know, when you're looking at stuff day to day. And second, you're looking at it together so that you get your view together. So everybody can, they don't necessarily agree 
they don't necessarily have exactly the same view, but they understand the views in the group. And so those, those two aspects, I think, are very important in order to be able to see things that you don't see on a day-by-day basis. Right. You get to have as many feedback loops as you want. You have the ones right in front of your nose if you're paying attention, and sometimes that's not enough to see a bigger pattern if you do it yourself or if you do it with a group. Retrospective is a, is a particular activity that people do in a particular way with a particular expectation of how often they do that. Retrospecting is a thing that we can maybe probably never do too much of, except if we retrospect enough to realize that it's too much. But it's, <laughs> as, a, as an activity, what it implies is, is looking for what needs to change based on how things went. And there is no Agile without retrospecting. So the question is how much and when, and I agree with you, George, it's a false dichotomy to say that we don't need the longer interval with more people and more structure, and we only need the short one. I think we can have as many intervals for retrospecting as we want to. In in my experience, really good retrospectives get beyond just, you know, fixing a a, uh, problem on the surface, you know, solving some, some issue that we've noticed. They really get down and they, and they test our assumptions. And, and help us fix those. And th- those are the things that really hold us back. So, so a good retrospective gets into what's called double-loop learning, where we're not just fixing the things that we already know about, the things that need fixing because of the assumptions we're making, but they're testing our assumptions themselves and, and helping us find completely new ways of looking at the situation and new solutions, therefore that are more powerful. You know what strikes me when I see tweets or messages about dumping a well-respected and time-tested practice is there's usually, and I'm not saying that this is the case for this particular thread, but there's usually damage somewhere. You know, something's been abused, uh, something's been misused, and and I'm wondering if perhaps there are some people out there who have had retrospectives turned into, I guess, negative situations or punishment sessions as opposed to being reflective about the sprint, digging into the mindsets of the, of the group members, challenging assumptions, and instead it just becomes, you didn't get this done, you didn't get that done, you're doing this wrong. And I, I think that when you see those messages about, I don't want to do estimates anymore, or I don't want to do retrospectives anymore, my fear there is that there is some damage or some abuse going on that kind of drives that, right. and that you end up losing such an excellent practice, such as a retrospective. Well, it's, uh, it's a really interesting practice in that it's very hard to do meaningfully without a great deal of trust. It also builds a great deal of trust. But it's very hard to conduct the activity in a meaningful way if everybody in the room is afraid of what happens based on what they say. And it, it can be very difficult to establish that they don't need to be. Yeah, I think it's tremendously hard to set up a safe environment to conduct a meaningful retrospective. But it's something that it's something that I've I've spoken with, you know, my my management at times and we've done these things, that they have to create that that not sense of safety, but true safety that you can, you can discuss topics, you can make insightful uh, observations, you can say things that are against the grain and still come out of it with your head on your shoulders. And uh, I find that that is, I, I think you're absolutely right, that is such a difficult thing to establish. And even if you get that buy-in from, from everyone, it's hard to get everyone to believe that it's actually true. So George, that- I'd be curious for your take on something. 
Uh, sorry okay. to jump in. I'm curious. I haven't seen this yet, but retrospectives that go spectacularly badly maybe should be stopped rather than do more damage. Uh, have you seen anything like that, and how do you bootstrap out of it? So what makes a retrospective go really badly? Typically, it's, it's you know, when somebody with power is trying to get their way and is playing, you know, a power game in, the rec in what's supposed to be a retrospective. The best way I know to solve that problem is have another retrospective without that person. And I've done that before, you know, where there was an official retrospective <clears throat> that had a manager in the room and nobody wanted to talk. And so they would talk, <clears throat> talk about the things that, that they thought the manager wanted to, to hear and then have another retrospective of just the development team where people could say what was on their mind. And I facilitated that. You know, I did a safety exercise at the beginning to see how, how safe people were willing to say they felt. And I also told them that they were the ones in charge of, of what, if anything, got reported out of that retrospective. That's an excellent tip right there. I think that's an amazing insight that they are responsible for what goes out. And that really gives them that control. I think that's a great, uh, a great point there. And it's interesting you talk about the retrospective after the retrospective, right? <laughs> I actually had a situation today where we were, we were discussing a project and, and status. And I actually took myself out of the room because I am in a management uh, position now. And I just, I realized that they weren't talking. And I'd rather them have the conversation without me then tiptoe around issues and, and not get things resolved. So I actually just left and I told them, I'm not going to participate in this. You guys have the issues that you need to talk through. I get that you don't want to talk about them in front of me. So here's your space. And I think that went a long way. They ended up coming out of that discussion. I think it was two and a half or three hours later. It was originally a 30 minute meeting, <laughs> but they had an excellent plan going forward they came out of it smiling when before they weren't. You know, George, it's funny you bring up that tip, and then today there was an application of it. But I, I can't stress it enough. That is a wonderful uh, tip. Uh, just they own the output. Whether or not you have a manager who will leave the room or or organize around that, uh, I I can't I can't support that enough. Yeah, it, it really helps to have a, a facilitator, someone with facilitation skills. Now that doesn't have to be someone who is, does that all the time. Sometimes you've got natural facilitators in the group to, to help make sure everybody's voice is heard and, and keep, you know, keep things going and keep things from getting derailed, bring things back to, you know, if, if they start going awry, uh, raise awareness, you know, if it starts becoming a blame session or, or a complaint session. And sometimes, you know, particularly if they're companies that have, have a bunch of teams, then they may want to to uh, trade facilitators. Another thing about retrospectives is they can get stale. If you're going through you know, the same motions every time, then you can fall into a rut and not really think about what you're doing anymore. So you, you ha there are different ways of mixing it up. You can do different exercises. You can do them at different intervals. There's, there's lots of different things you can do. Doing, doing the same pattern every two weeks uh, will get boring. And people will lose interest in it and, and say, oh, this isn't doing us any good. We should drop retrospectives, where I think they should learn how to do a better retrospective. You know, there was another interesting thread recently on Twitter about retrospectives where there are, there's a camp of people that recommend a, a backlog of items from a retrospective 
And then a very prominent voice came out and said, I don't believe in lists, just fix the problem. And I, I think there were two things behind it. One, the backlogs grow, apathy sets in, and issues don't get fixed. And then two, when that happens, the value of the retrospective plummets and people stop participating because it's no <clears throat> longer worth the risk of speaking. But I'm wondering, what do you guys think about you know, the retrospective backlogs, if those make sense? Is it, is it the is this a is it the role before the retrospective or of output from it? It's it would be the output from a, a retrospective. So if you've seen those work well, if you think that makes sense, or if this was just someone venting, I think you should pick. You know, the team should pick one or two things that they want to address right now. Yeah, there's always you know opportunity in the future to do other things, and if somebody wants to work on something that that the team didn't pick, they they can do that. Um, I worked with a team one time, and I forget how many, but for several sprint retrospectives in a row, then they said the thing they wanted to work on is we need to get better at, at pair programming. After they had done this several times and they chose this again, I said, "Man, make a suggestion." I said, "Why don't you choose something that you've got the energy to to actually try to uh, tackle? You know, it doesn't have to be your biggest problem." And so they chose something else, and, and, and things got a whole lot better there because they weren't doing so well at pair programming when they thought, oh, we have to do this because this is our biggest problem. And they got, they got somewhat better at that when it was, the pressure was off. There, and it's self-induced pressure. That's, I think, the risk of the, of the idea of a backlog that comes out of a retrospective is they've already got a backlog, and that's what, the one they're on the hook for. So... You only have so much, you know, cognitive energy to go around for also improving your work as you're doing the work. And on the one hand, I have sympathy for why do you have a bug tracker? Why don't you just fix all the bugs? Maybe applying that to the idea of retrospectives as well. But on the other hand, people need to make sure that they're delivering on what the product owner is expecting. And that's not anything in particular about how they do the work. That's up to them. So I think it's it's kind of pie in the sky and draining to, to set very high expectations for a backlog of things to be worked on. If they're important, they'll come up again. If they're solved, they won't. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that brings up an interesting, maybe this will be our final point on, on retrospectives, but the, the time it takes to just sit back and think, which looping back to the original Twitter thread that started this conversation about retrospectives, I think it is possible to fix things at a point in time as they occur. But sometimes I'm just not smart enough to fix it on the fly. You guys ever feel like that? Oh, sure. That just something comes up and it's like, holy cow, I need to hit a few books. I need to check out George's blog, see if he's ever dealt with this before, and really try to figure out a good answer rather than something off the cuff just to deal with it and move on. And I think that's part of the value of a planned retrospective at the end of a sprint is that you have that time to think through a problem, you have that time to be intentional uh, about a situation and to come to the plate with a well-thought-through solution. You guys think that makes sense? It, it may not even be a well-thought-through solution, but it, the attention is, is what counts. Right. And, and so that makes me think of DeMarco's book, Slack. If, if you don't have any Slack, then you can't improve. Now, I put off reading that book for many years because I thought I knew what it said. And it and yes, 
it said what I thought it said, but it also says a whole lot of other things. It's an excellent book. It, but the thing is, is, is if you're t- trying to run at 100% capacity, then you're stuck. You can't do anything differently. And that's part of what retrospectives get you out of. You know, my favorite visualization of that is traffic. Yeah. And so this is a, there's, there's a neat image that's floating around. I'll see if I can track it down and put it in the, in the show notes where it asks you basically what happens if a highway is 10% utilized? What does throughput look like? And it's amazingly fast. And then it goes up to 50 and things are still getting done at a hundred percent. Nothing moves forward. Every your 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 wall to wall cars and you're not going anywhere. And I, I love that illustration. And George, I love that point because it, most managers are looking for 100% utilization of their resources, quote unquote. And uh, it does not leave that time to be introspective about your own practices. It doesn't leave that time to have a meaningful retrospective. And it, it is definitely one of those, those damaging practices. Yeah, 100% utilization on a highway is called a parking lot. <laughs> exactly. But, but you also see it in uh, terms of network traffic. So on sure. Ethernet, I think the peak throughput is something like 37% utilization. Sure. It's amazingly low. Otherwise, you know, the, the uh, collisions start becoming so much that nothing's getting through. And I guess people do speak in those terms as well because they, in the office, at least I've heard a few times, you know, do you have the bandwidth to, to take this on? And I think that uh, that relates back to those concepts pretty well. So this ties into my topic that I brought, which is metaphors for software development really nicely. <laughs> metaphors, huh? Yeah, and the, All right. the context I'm bringing to that is uh, in this consulting kind of a role, I find myself in situations where I'm helping a company that maybe doesn't specialize in software development, but does software development and doesn't know top to bottom organizationally what that's like. They may think they know what it's like and they may not know. And uh, short of putting them through school and getting an engineering education and learning XP and whatever else there is out there, uh, I'm, I'm interested in collecting metaphors that might help explain to different kinds of leaders in different organizations what it is like to develop software in a way that helps them make better decisions about it. So I always thought of it as 55 minutes of incredibly intense thinking and five minutes of typing (laughs) per problem, right? And that's something that non-programmers have trouble understanding. They think, and especially some management thinks, if you're not typing, you're not working. And uh, that, maybe it's, the metaphor is not necessarily the strongest in the world, but it does highlight, uh, it's not even really a great metaphor, but it's maybe more of an analogy, but it, it highlights that it, it's a thinking practice. We're not, we're not factory workers. We're actually doing creative work that uh, requires thought, consideration, and eventually fingers start hitting the keys. And vice versa. The fingers hitting the keys sometimes sometimes elicit the thought that couldn't be summoned before that happened. Uh, in, in the doing, you do the discovering of the thinking that you needed. So it goes yeah. both ways. But that sounds more like reality than a metaphor. <laughs> it is, it is emergent. Yeah, and, and that's one of the surprising things I found with test-driven development is that by slicing the, the thinking and the, and the typing up into these little tiny pieces, then they feed each other really quickly. And that's a benefit that I never expected to find. Certainly but, for me. But ex- uh, explaining yeah. that to a manager, that's tough. So a uh, metaphor that definitely doesn't work very well is the construction one. 
but here are some metaphors that I dug up just to to make sure I could attribute them correctly. Uh, there was one for gardening, which I quite like, and that apparently originates from Andy Hunt and Dave Thomas. There's Alistair Coburn's Cooperative Game. And uh, one of them that really caught my eye recently, I don't know how I ran across it, uh, Joshua Karajewski talks about bargain hunting, looking for things that have pretty good value for low cost. So how do any of those strike you? Gardening, cooperative game, bargain hunting? I think they're all valuable. Having been a, uh, an organic vegetable farmer, then, then uh, I've used that myself. One of the things, you know, you can't just throw fertilizer and, and make things go faster. You know, you have to, to, in organic farming, you feed the soil and the soil then feeds the plant. And so, you, you know, in Agile, you want to feed the, the situation, make it a healthy place and things will go, go more smoothly. Uh, rather than trying to push directly on the things you want. So that's one thing. I've used sailing metaphors before, but the, the, the problem with them is I end up having to teach people sailing first, and so <laughs> it, it doesn't make a very good metaphor. It does increase the billable hours, though, right? I've, uh, I've known people to use uh, uh, mu- music metaphors, particularly jazz. You know, I would but, be interested to hear more about that because my degree is in music. You know, because there's there's a lot of interplay between people and, and, and the communication, the silent communication between members of a, a small jazz group is pretty amazing. And they're improvising. Right. Or they're speaking to each other through their instruments, really. And and you can do that with your code, too. You know? So does that lend itself to even a pair pro- programming metaphor then is you have two people jamming on instruments and they start syncing up and then you have two pair programmers who get synced up on code and i i actually like that one quite a bit i think that's interesting and i think it's true across the the entire team uh when you get a team that gels it's a pretty amazing thing probably most people have never really experienced that i experienced it once before agile it was relatively short-lived because the company went out of business but but uh, it, it really, we did a lot of work together in quite a short period of time. And when I discovered Agile, I thought, oh, this is the best bet for making that happen again. Because it so do you, is based around teams. So do you find that feeling to be elusive, George? Is it a, is it, you know, I always think of Shuha Ri, and I think of Ri as being perhaps attained two or three times ever. And it's elusive, and I, I wonder if that makes if that relates back to your thoughts there on a, a team that is fully gelled and uh, is progressing like that. I don't think that's a shuhari thing. I think that's a uh, a communication thing, you know, communication and trust. And a lot of it, ha- I've um, I've seen some teams do really well when you start out with setting good beginning conditions. What's his name? Hackman talks about that. He died uh, about a year ago, I guess. He's done a lot of work on, on how to set things up for teams. But sometimes it doesn't take that much. People have a feeling for this. And, and starting out by emphasizing the teamwork and, and doing some exercises that help people become aware of, of what each other thinks about teamwork and what, what, what are the characteristics of, of good teams and what are the characteristics in places where they didn't, you know, things weren't so good, and helps people make some choices that way, and and helps 
you can't force a team to happen, but you can lay the groundwork that, that enables it. I've been looking at the work of uh, Daniel Mezik, and he's written a, a pretty interesting culture book. And he actually is advocating starting an agile transformation or starting a new scrum team with an open space exercise. So it's essentially setting the stage for getting a lot of issues out in the open, getting the concerns and fears and thoughts you know, right there in these different open space type sessions. And I, you know, George, as you were talking, it just made me think of that, that maybe that's an interesting way of, you know, to go back to maybe the gardening metaphor, to get that raised box built and the right soil in it and the right fertilizer and get that stage set. Do you have any experiences with that or any thoughts on the idea of kicking off an activity like that with open space? I'm a little skeptical about the range of situations where that could work. And, and the reason is that a lot of the situations I encounter, you know, there, there are self-managed teams and there are self-directed teams. And if you're really going to do open space, then you're talking about self-direction. The team is really, ma- everybody is making decisions and you're, you're talking about a, a Zappos or Spotify type of company. And I, I don't think there are many of those. You know, if the company is... It's got investors who put in a lot of money and and they want to have some say about you know what the business is that they're in, then that may not may not work as well. And I think probably one of the worst things would be is if if you were in a situation where you were not going to let the team really make make the decisions and you pretended that you were, and you did an open space and then they found that oh, they were overruled on their decisions. So. You know, that could be a tricky thing. And, and, and so I've never seen, you know, Dan do this. So it, um, there may be a lot about what he does that I don't understand. But I think that it's okay to, to set boundaries around the team and say, within these boundaries, then you can do what you want. But here are the expectations we have of you. You know, here's, here's the expectations the company has of you. So that's probably the single best role that management can play uh, for an agile team then is just setting those boundaries and expectations and, and, and getting that set early yeah. and making sure that it's accepted. And, and even, you know, setting up the initial conditions for success. Trickling people into a team is not good for, for team formation. Uh, right. It would be better to form it all at once. Moving people around from team to team is really destructive to teams. You know, every time, every time you add somebody or remove someone, then the team has to adjust and, to some degree, really has to reform. Now, depending on the situation, they may do that rather quickly, but they're still going through sort of the same basic questions they did in forming the first time. It so happens yeah. that uh, tomorrow, the team, one of the teams that I'm coaching, uh, they, they're about 10, and about five of them have been on the team for a while, and about five of them are new. It's a big team, and they're having a team-building exercise tomorrow. So if we had done this a little bit later, I might have had something specific to say about that. Well, it's always a topic for next time. I think we've hit that topic pretty well. And as I look at the clock, we might have time for perhaps one more dive into a topic if you guys are up for it. So something that's at the front of my mind and actually a part of a topic that I'll be giving a, a talk on next month is empathy for management. And so something that as I go to conferences, as I go through you know, the different training classes and read a lot of the literature, I'm noticing there is a slant against management in the Agile community. 
And some of this manifests in Dilbert in the Dilbert cartoons that are used in, you know, the Scrum.org or the Scrum Alliance training guides and the, you know, pointing at the pointy head manager who doesn't understand anything. And I'm thinking that I'm con my concern is, and I've actually I've I've heard this expressed by managers, is that we're not friendly towards them. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Have we failed? The management community are we are we not inclusive and friendly towards them? Have they earned some of this uh, backlash? You know, what are your thoughts on that? Is it a, is it a fair statement to say that we've not uh, necessarily that perhaps we've as a community have missed the mark with that middle management layer? Well, I think we put them in a tough spot just by the message that we have. No matter how we say it, uh, what we're saying is that this this coordinating role that is maybe the primary function of middle management is not gone, but much less important. And there's not really a way to say that nicely other than quickly. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know if there's a good way to get that message across. It's the same problem. I think you guys talked about a little bit on the last episode about project managers in particular. Uh, they have skills that are relevant. Their role may be less so, but if there are things they can bring to the team that help, we want those. Uh, same for any other kind of manager. If they have, you know, useful behaviors that we can apply toward an agile team success, we want those behaviors. We just don't want all the rest of the stuff that comes with typical middle management. So I don't know how you say that to them nicely, other than we wish that you would want to be included. Well, I've got a little different take on it. Because I think there's room for lots of management behavior in, you know, on agile teams, on in agile organizations. But what a lot of people think of as management behavior, I don't think is management. I think it's foreman. It's directing people rather than directing work. Manager is a little bit of a funny position. In Scrum, it's sort of split up between product owner and, and Scrum master, uh, you know, both of whom are, are sort of playing aspects of that traditional management role in terms of you know, what gets done and, and helping facilitate that happening. And, you know, what order things, you know, when, when, when are the deadlines, what needs to, what are the, the priorities, things like that. But the, the hard thing is to let people, you know, to trust people and facilitate people stepping up and doing the job themselves. But on the other hand, I, I run into an awful lot of programmers and testers who say, oh, the Agile conferences are no good anymore because they're all for managers. So I think that there's a perception in both directions. And I think the, the real issue is that it's, it's hard to learn empathy for people who ha, you know, are filling a role that's different from yours that you don't understand very well. So I've had an idea about that that I would like to try sometime. Maybe you have. And that's experimentally, maybe for an iteration or two, everybody on the team rotate into a role that they think they wouldn't like or they don't understand. Hmm. Uh, and experience what it's like to do that because somebody has to be responsible for it and then uh, maybe have some appreciation for the person who normally does. So have you heard of anything like that being done? So I, I've never seen the, the rotation quite like that. What I have experienced either through my own career progression or through people that I've, I've mentored and promoted is that when they step into a new role, it, the eyes just jet wide open. Right. So they, they start immediately. I think it's kind of like growing up, going through your teenage years, hitting your 20s, getting established and then calling your parents and saying, I'm really sorry 
<laughs> for the past, you know, five to five to ten years, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, did I make George choke? <laughs> yeah, I I think it's really kind of like that, you where you finally understand. Yeah, yeah, well, of course, I'm not paying those charges. No, I I think it is kind of like that, where you you get a new perspective, and all of a sudden, things that didn't make sense to you make sense. This ties into something George said early on about the, I guess, uh, ecumenicism of an effective coach and consultant. Uh, certainly for me, the, an another reason that I guess I forgot to call out that it seems to be going okay so far uh, as a beginner is that I have been in a lot of different roles in a team in an organization. And so uh, at no additional effort, I have empathy for people in those situations. If it took more effort, I might not do it or I might not understand what I was trying to do, but because I have, you know, moved all the way around the circle and up and down the tree, uh, my, my eyes are open and my heart is open. And if it were harder because I didn't have that background, then I might be less effective. You know, the problem that I think some of us are working against or trying to solve right now is that when a manager, let's say manager, director, VP level, when they hear the term self-managing, self-organizing, self-directing, Shields go up, and it is a freakout moment. I actually gave a talk at a local company here in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and the second I started talking about self-organizing, the director of the team stopped me and was very adamant that I explain that that uh, and that I make it clear that management still needed. It was a very defensive posture that immediately went up. And what I, the nut that I'm trying to crack is, how do we talk about Agile? How do we keep these people on board? Because in all honesty, if you get enough managers, directors, VPs scared, you're going to get your initiative killed. You know, even the best grassroots effort will not stand up to a motivated VP who does not want to lose his bonus and, and all those other things. So I'm wondering if there is a different approach needed by the community to, to address these people or if, or if we continue as is. And, and this is the nut that I'm trying to crack and what I'm, I'm really thinking through these days. You put a finger on, on the same thing as my mental model, which is when we go to an organization in whole or in part and say we're going to change how it works, then everybody's scared. And they want to know that there is a role for them when this is all said and done and a role that they can succeed in because what they have is a situation that to some degree they've mastered. They understand the rules. They've, they've positioned themselves inside it. They're comfortable with what's going to come next. They understand how the game is played. And we're coming in and saying, new game. So what kind of piece do I get? What kind of moves can it make? Uh, am I even right. on the board? And so I think that that's the thing we have to address is, can we honestly say there is a role? Can we honestly paint a picture of what it is? If we can't, maybe that's what we should say. Well, I, one thing I learned from Dale Emery is when in those situations, you know, and, and whether you're talking, looking at it from, Managers telling upper management telling the teams they're going to work in a different way or or things going in the other direction. What makes people worried is is not worried about what they're going to get out of it. What what they really tend to worry about is how can they contribute. That's the thing that the Dale says that you know W I I T uh, F M is not what's in it for me, but what's in it from me. And so, you're right, it's changing the rules, and they're wondering, well, I know how to, you know, I can play this other role blindfolded, but, but what am I supposed to do now? How can I contribute? How can I show value? 
I think that statement right there, George, is hitting it on the head. It's how do I show value? Uh, and that's something that I think a lot of people in that middle management role, myself included, really focus on daily. It's, you know, are you're earning the right to come back each day. You're, you're making sure that your value is, is, that you're adding value to the situation. And, and yeah, it is a real sense of loss, I think, to a lot of these managers when people come in and start talking about some of these agile concepts and that maybe it's the fear of loss of, of value or contributing. I, I like that take, George. It's a positive, mm-hmm. it's a positive spin. And I think it's, it could foster more empathy towards these people because the, we are coming in and we are rocking the boat and they, they are very intelligent people. They're usually pretty successful people moving up the ladder. They're very good at what they do and they've used past skills to get there and telling them it is a new game and a new day. I mean, it is, it is quite the trick. So I really like that focus in on value and the idea that they are really thinking what's in it, I guess, from me. So I think if I look up at the clock, guys, we are at our time box. I have to say it's been an incredibly fun conversation. The time has flown by. Really appreciative of all of your insights. And at this point, we usually go around the table, give your contact info, anything that you're up to, any talks, conferences, workshops, anything that you'd like to plug and let people know about, and then we'll do uh, the wrap-up. So All right. Go uh, ahead. I'll take it. Uh, website is schmanz.com. Twitter is schmanz, uh, S-C-H-M-O-N-Z. There's a story, but we're time-boxed, so I'll tell it another time. If you like the sound of my voice about half as much as I do, you can hear it in a few ways pretty soon. One is I'll be speaking at Agile Roots in June. I will be doing a DevOps workshop with Lisa Crispin and also an experience report of my own. Uh, If you want to hear something earlier, I'm speaking at Self Conference in Detroit, which is about half code, half humanity, uh, and that's at the end of this month, May. And finally, if you want to go hear something from me right now, on some topics that we touched on today, I just started a podcast called Agile in Three Minutes, agileinthreeminutes.com. And the first three episodes are Agile itself, retrospectives, and trust. So if you want to help me figure out what to do next, you can look at the backlog at agileinthreeminutes.com and weigh in with your opinion. Did you just plug a competing podcast? It's not competing. Collaborating. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I actually have listened to the first couple episodes of Agile in Three Minutes and I really enjoy it. I think I'm going to leave some comments for you, and uh, I I think it's a lot of fun. So that's that's awesome. And congrats on those those talks. I hope they go well for you. Thank you. All right, George. How can people get a hold of you? Uh, okay, I'm, I'm George Dinwiddie, and um, I'm uh, at G Dinwiddie on on Twitter. I'm most prolific on uh, uh, blog.gdinwiddie.com. My uh, company website is ideacomputing.com, I-D-I-A computing.com. So you can find me in all those places and a scattering of others. And since, I'll mention that since we were talking about retrospectives, next week I'll be out at the Retrospective Facilitators Gathering out in Tahoe, which is a, uh, a small, movable conference that uh, it's been alternating between the U.S. And, and Europe for a number of years. That sounds awesome. We'll have to get you back on to talk about how that went. Okay. Maybe we'll have some more retrospective tips for people. And I'm Ryan Ripley. You can find me on Twitter at Ryan Ripley. I blog at agileanswerman.com, and you can reach me by email, ryan at agileanswerman.com. I just want to thank everyone, first of all, for listening in. Uh, without the listeners, it's it's hard to uh, to do what we do, so we really appreciate you 
And you guys, thank you so much for joining on this episode. Great to have your insights. And I, I, like I said, great discussion, great tips, and I can't wait to do this again. So thanks, everyone, and, and have a great night. Okay, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for getting us together. Hey, it's Ryan. If you're enjoying this show and want to take a deeper dive into Scrum with me and Todd, check out agileforhumans.com forward slash training. Be sure to also look at the show notes to subscribe to our newsletter, get a copy of our book, Fixing Your Scrum, and learn more about working with us at Agile for Humans. Thanks for listening and Scrum on.